in a world where podcasting rules supreme, you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We've seen a lot in recent years that seems to be polarizing this country, more than I've ever witnessed in my nearly half century on this planet. In the last few years, an area that seems to be growing in its polarization in the world of sports is how to approach a transgender athlete, particularly from the standpoint of participation. I think it's easy for any of us to rush to a conclusion as to what may seem like the easy way out, as many states have been attempting to just outright ban the participation of transgender athletes in sports. But should we be discouraging anyone from participation in a sport? As I've learned over the years, we need to first listen and learn before making a decision that can affect the lives and especially mental well-being of the lives of our youth. Today on the podcast, I'm proud to have a fellow Vanderbilt sports medicine grad on my program to help us all learn a little, to listen a little, and to help us be better advocates for the transgender athlete. Her recent talk at my annual sports medicine conference was truly educational for me, and I'm hopeful this conversation today will provide the same experience for you. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Katie Rizzoni. Dr. Rizzoni is an associate professor of orthopedics and pediatrics at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. She is the head team physician for the State University of New York at Brockport and has multiple areas of clinical and research that she focuses on, including running medicine, female athlete, and injury prevention. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rizzoni. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sure you'll agree that the rapid increase in states attempting to outright ban transgender athletes from participating is a little alarming. I think many of those attempting to legislate this issue at a state level probably don't have a great understanding of the science and the mental health issues at play here and probably even a good grasp of the terminology at play, which I think a good place to start here is just let's talk terminology. So can you talk a little bit about the differences between the terms sex and gender, since those oftentimes seem to be used interchangeably? Sure. Sex is really based off a biological basis. So it's the genetic difference. So in biologically born females, that would be an XX chromosome and biologically born males, it'd be an XY chromosome. Whereas gender is going to be a more fluid than that. It's going to really be how an individual views themselves, how they identify their gender. So gender can be more defined by the individual themselves. And then how about transgender versus non-binary? Yeah, I think these are used, oftentimes used interchangeably. Transgender is someone whose gender identity doesn't match the sex assigned to them at birth. Whereas someone who's non-binary, it's really a whole nother umbrella in that binary, of course, means two. So we think of the binary in terms of gender being male, female. Someone who's non-binary really doesn't identify as either, or they could identify as one more than the other in certain situations. I think part of it you really highlighted in your intro is that some of these terms, they're new for many of us. And the other thing that I think happens is some terms can be added, you know, and there's new language. You feel like you've kind of grasped what the terminology is in a certain issue, particularly in LGBTQ and transgender, the transgender arena. But it, it is that as we really start to understand this area more and amplify the voices of members of the community, you find that perhaps that there are additional terms that we need to better understand because, again, as individuals start to define themselves, those may change. And I think that's a, a good point. I myself struggle sometimes with obviously being conscious about 
making sure I'm using the right pronouns and things like that with people. I mean, it, it's sometimes, you know, I think it's, it's challenging if we don't know those pronouns ahead of time or what someone requests or, or prefers. I mean, some people obviously are very open about it and other people aren't. And so do you find ways that addressing the pronoun issue with patients and athletes as far as their preferences, do you ask about it or do you just let it happen and they let them kind of discuss for you what they would prefer? Yeah, because I think that's a really great way to be a solid ally, either with athletes you're working with or patients in your clinics. It is, as you say, it can be difficult. This is not something, even within the past couple of years, I feel that was something that commonly came up. And I think the nice thing is that as we start to normalize expressing our own pronouns that we prefer and the pronouns of others, you know, inquiring about that, I, I think that that's going to become more and more just part of the norm in terms of whether it's at conferences. I have Epic, the medical record system. I have Epic at the University of Rochester and people, patients' pronouns are now kind of front and center on part of their face sheet. So I think that that's something that Epic can do. And I bet other electronic health records can do that as well. Certainly at conferences. And I feel like just in general, people are very open about what their pronouns are. Like I'm a cisgendered woman. My preferred pronouns are are she and her. You see on Twitter, people adding those to their bio on Zoom. I think it's been really great that a lot of organizations and a lot of academic centers are starting to encourage people to put their preferred pronouns there as well. I think the opportunity is huge, especially someone like myself, even as a gay woman as part of the LGBTQ community, I feel like I'm constantly making sure that how I'm approaching a patient or an athlete that I've been very thoughtful and I make mistakes. And I think that everyone is going to make mistakes, especially if this is something that they haven't practiced a lot or that they're used to doing. And I think the biggest thing is then saying, and saying right then in that moment, I, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And I'm going to try harder and not do that again. So I, I think just knowing that you're going to make a mistake, it's going to happen, identifying it in that moment, and then learning from that, I think is probably one of the best ways to be an ally is just really being aware and practicing it. Kind of like I was talking about the listen and learn, right? And yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. No, that was perfect how you said it. And I think for any issue, like you said, there's so many ethical and medical issues in, in the sports medicine community, many of which have come up in the past couple of years. So it can feel overwhelming, but it is about understanding that you know life is a process and every day we're going to get something right, we're going to get something wrong. And then the next day you, you can try to write that. I think that's an important point too, because then that helps establish a better trust with that physician patient relationship too. When, when you're acknowledging that and you acknowledge your mistake that you make there too. And obviously, hopefully the person has that grace on the other side of that too, to recognize that, Hey, you know, this was an honest mistake. This wasn't an intentional thing. So you may not realize how much of that little gesture or paying attention or really listening, how much that might mean to someone who is part of the transgender community. So it's interesting. Like sometimes I, I, I think that it's often that you feel like you get more negative feedback when you're trying something and, and, and you're, you're trying to be thoughtful about things. Oftentimes you're doing many, many things right. And you just won't get that positive feedback because people are just like so touched or it's in the moment. And so it is just continually trying to listen. Like you said, I really like that. If you make a mistake, acknowledge it and then be aware of that or educate yourself by looking up how you can do that better next time. So one thing you discussed in your talk that I liked was was talking about using transgender as an adjective and not a noun. So can you talk about that a little bit further for our listeners who didn't have the, the pleasure of being able to hear that? 
it's a nuance and the Glad website, I really like their explanation on it. If anyone is looking for some more background on terminology or just even understanding the community, the Glad G-L-A-A-D, has a media reference guide and I really like that. And even for people who are in one, definitely a clinical setting, I think that that's helpful, but certainly for folks who do research as a part of their position, there's some really helpful insights and in just in terms of thoughts and ideas for how to ask questions on surveys and things like that. So in terms of an adjective versus a noun, you would want to use transgender in, in terms of, you could say Tristan is, is a transgender man versus Tristan is transgender. And, and, you know, with any community, some individuals of that community may not be offended by use of it as a noun, but you, you don't want to say a parade has transgenders in it. So it is just trying, again, to be thoughtful. And if you're not sure, then you can ask people what they would prefer, or you can just think it through or again, look it up. Because I think paying attention to how people respond to things that you say, you might say to yourself, ooh, that might have come off the wrong way. So let me see if that would be the preferred way of saying it. Again, this is new territory, I think, and it may continue to evolve. So I think, again, that's something important to acknowledge that as, as you feel like you have it down and you have a general sense, it's oftentimes then continuing to pay attention and listen to the community and see what their preferences are. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's just kind of talk about epidemiology now. What, what's kind of the current epidemiology of those who might identify as a transgender male or female? It's a really interesting question. As you know, with sports injury epidemiology, we've really only created some of those definitions recently in the last couple of years, even in the last decade. It's very similar with the transgender community. Certainly worldwide, I think we have probably a, a gross underestimation because of the stigma associated with that. And worldwide, there may not be as many legal or really societal protections for members of the transgender community. In the United States, we have some estimates that around 0.6% of the population may identify as, as transgender. A more recent study that was, if people, if folks are familiar with the adolescent population, the NHANES survey goes out very regularly to the adolescent population in America. And as part of that, I think it was two years ago, they piloted some questions in regards to gender identity. And 1.6% of that population, so that was ninth to 12th graders, actually identified as transgender. So that's a huge difference. You know, that, that's almost a three times difference. And I'm sorry, I think I said 1.6. I meant to say 1.8 of that population. There's probably an underestimation globally, certainly within the United States, there's probably an underestimation as well, but there's probably somewhere between one to 3% of the population who may identify as a different gender of the sex that they were born in. So I do think over the next decade, that number may rise just because I think people are going to you're not going to know if you don't ask. So I think that that's one thing, you know, within your sports medicine clinic, within your sports organization community, that's something that I think if you offer that answer choice on a basic demographics, you know, are you male, female, non-binary, do you identify as transgender, that if you ask, I think that you're going to probably find people to respond affirmatively more than you may expect. If you don't ask, it's hard to know because you don't, offer folks that option. So it's being more thoughtful about that, certainly asking, you know, even for 
parental information. You know, if parents, if there's a line for preferred pronouns for the parents, in addition to the athlete, I think that's an important thing as well. You're going to have to potentially, hopefully not often, but calling a parent or guardian, there's an injury or, you know, if there, you think there's something going on with your athlete. So I think it's important on multiple levels because you just, you don't know, you don't know how people identify with the folks that you're talking to. And certainly that's a great way to connect more strongly with your patients and your athletes is being that type of person who thinks to themselves, okay, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know who I'm talking to. Let me get some more information first. So to summarize, we're probably underestimating. I think that in the next decade, we're going to be better about asking about it. And I also think in the next decade that people will feel more comfortable in reporting a gender identity as, as transgender because hopefully there's going to be less stigma surrounding it. And I think, you know, you and I both know why this topic is important. And I'm hopeful our audience does as well. I've always been of the philosophy that, hey, if this is an area that I'm not as familiar with, it's not something that, you know, I'm privy to on a regular basis. I I don't have any transgender uh, people in my family that I'm aware of that, you know, some may feel that this topic is unnecessary and I shouldn't be having a podcast episode about this. I'm sure I will have some people that will say that. But why do we need to have this discussion? I think that it's important on multiple levels. To your point, I think many of us, particularly, again, if you think about that proportion between, you know, one to three percent and depending upon where you live and depending upon, you know, whether you're just working with athletes, whether you're working in a general practice, you just well, you might not feel that this is something that's a large proportion of your patient panel or your athletes. But again, you don't know. Um, and I think that one thing, I mean, I don't usually get into following uh, the celebrity lifestyle or the, the social media uh, accounts of people like that. But I do think there's been really great examples, some athletes, some non-athletes who have over time come out as transgender and transitioned very publicly. And people, I think, are oftentimes shocked. Certainly, Caitlyn Jenner is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um when Caitlin was living as a man before she transitioned, who would be a more masculine role model, you know, in terms of someone who is an Olympic champion, really had basically everything going for him in sports. It is one of those things where I think the more you are aware of being open about asking about people's pronouns, again, kind of making your questions of whether it's parents, whether it's your athlete, you know, more open-ended because you don't know if they have a sibling who may identify as such. And that sibling might be interested in getting involved in sports, but the family isn't really sure how to do it. So I think it's one of those things where if you normalize, again, asking people's pronouns, normalize talking about this area, I do think that a lot of families out there are going to be like, oh gosh, you know, this person really gets it and I feel safe talking to them. We certainly know that members of the transgender population experience a lot of negative repercussions as a result of their gender identity. They have much higher um, job insecurity, housing insecurity. They may, because of that, they may not have health insurance. And certainly that's important with their medical care. There's a greater number of people who are transgender who are, are homeless, especially in compared, direct comparison with the cisgender population. So we know that sports is beneficial on a multiple level. It's, there's physical benefits, there's emotional benefits, there's mental benefits. It, within our sports medicine world, you're right. I think people would say, well, this doesn't really impact me. This isn't something, you know, I feel I really 
deal with most days of the week that I need to be becoming more knowledgeable about. But the thing is, you just don't know. And I think, again, as I think families and individuals become more comfortable about sharing their gender identity and preferences with, with others, I think this is going to become more into play. In the end, I think people just, again, listening and paying attention and being mindful is going to make a big difference because this is a great population to really be participating in sports because of all the known benefits of that, of fostering a strong community for people. I think that that would be very helpful for a transgender youth individual, you know, to have part of their identity being associated with sports. It might be very important to them, might be very helpful to them as they are growing up. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion of the transgender athlete. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box from the voice box voicefarmers.com that's voicefarmers.com dr mark halstead here do you like what you're hearing on the pediatric sports medicine podcast if you want to learn how your business organization or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine connect with us and let's have a conversation you can reach out to us at pediatric sports medicine podcast.com You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com That's EditorCore.com we are back with Dr. Katie Rizzoni from the University of Rochester. We are discussing the transgender athlete. It was interesting, and I had mentioned this to you during our kind of discussion section after the talk is, you know, my personal experience with this here in Missouri, when we had changed our sports physical form to adopt the most current version of the pre-participation exam. And there was a state representative who was very upset with the Missouri State High School Athletic Association that we actually had a forum that asked about gender and specifically asking about preferences as it is on the national forum that is the recommended one mm -hmm. from all of our leading sports medicine organizations and feeling like that would be basically encouraging kids to to choose a different gender just because we asked a question about it i came back and and wrote a letter back to this representative because i was appalled because you know there there was a heavy religious type theme to it. And as a Christian myself, I felt that we were not really supporting and being loving of others with that kind of exclusionary type of statement and basically just said, hey, you know, 
This is an important question to ask, not that we're trying to say that we're encouraging kids to come out as being transgender or what have you, but, but this is an important question for us from a healthcare standpoint. And I, I think that gets lost on some people sometimes is that we need to know if a kid is having those issues and if they're struggling with coming out about their gender identity, uh, we want to be able to support them as healthcare providers to make sure that that they do have the supports that they need, because we do know that there are a lot of other issues that go along with just being transgender. We know that there's that, that there's that stigma for them, and there's significant mental health consequences. And I was really surprised that you know that was it was one of those that you know it's well you'll have your opinion, I'll have mine kind of thing. And I was I was very disappointed. Because it, it didn't get on the standpoint that, hey, this is this is a healthcare thing. And this is not like we're endorsing one way of someone's gender. And so I, I don't know. It was it was a very frustrating experience. I don't know if you've had any types of experiences like that dealing from from the legislative standpoint. And then we can kind of turn to where we're at kind of right now with a legislative standpoint. It's great that you're sharing that because I think you're really giving a great example of how to be a strong ally of any community, but particularly your example is very pertinent to the transgender community because I do think that people respect physicians and athletic trainers and pediatricians and physical therapists and coaches. I mean, we really do, especially, you know, particularly in the sports medicine world, I think still garner a lot of respect. And it's hard to, as a human, I guess, and as a pediatrician, to watch something like this, unfortunately, be either politicized or because it is oftentimes more of a political grandstand versus well, what is the actual appropriate patient care or athlete care policy? Because as you alluded to, there's significant mental health stressors for anyone, adult or child. But I mean, there's enough angst going on in childhood and adolescence for a cisgender individual to have to deal with. But a transgender individual, it's even more difficult. And just the sheer numbers, you know, from either suicidal ideation to actually attempting suicide, it's so much higher in the transgender community. And, you know, what's really was interesting for me to learn, you know, looking at a lot of this recent data and looking at the recommendations for care of the transgender athlete, which is a great article, it's is that you use folks' preferred pronoun and their preferred name, it really actually reduces suicidal ideation and suicidal behavior. I mean, just little stuff like that. It's not even let's make everything whatever the transgender community wants, uh, you know, because obviously there's that bathroom debate as well. But just using someone's preferred pronouns made a huge difference in mental health. And I think that in the end, unfortunately, people will use this to grandstand for a variety of, to, to get favor from certain groups. And I think in the end, there are many patients that I have not agreed with, you know, in terms of how they're doing sports or how, you know, what a coach is doing. But in the end, I'm going to support them to give them the best opportunity to participate in sports and I'm going to protect their health and I want to prevent injury. So whether or not this is something that you feel you understand or even agree with that, you know, especially with a kid feeling like they're able to really understand their gender identity. Again, as a gay woman, I did not actively choose to be gay. I would, I, I tried to pray my way to straight. So it's certainly one of those things where I think many, many members of the transgender community wish that they could be cisgendered. I think it would be a much, much easier life. So to have someone bring up that and frame the topic like that, 
is really harmful, obviously, to those individuals, to their families and to the people that love them, because it's scary. There are certainly much higher risks of violence against people who are a part of the transgender community as compared to the cisgender community. And so that is really scary when you're a parent or someone who cares for someone who identifies as transgender. So I think the things I can emphasize from that is thanks for doing what you did. I think that that's really is part of our role in the medical community and particularly the sports medicine community to offer our expertise and perspective and to highlight the benefits of all the benefits of participating in sports for any individual, and then also kind of help with the science, help guide policymakers and speak up to really demystify this issue and other issues and to really make sure that decisions are based on fact versus opinion. Yeah, I appreciate all those points there. I think one of the things my wife and I talk about a lot in relation to kids, she's a school nurse in our our school district. And that, you know, I think a lot of the struggles that a lot of kids have, I think for for most of us in life is we want to be seen and we want to be heard. And if we're not seen for who we are and we're not heard for our voice, then that's where that distrust comes from. And that's where I think a lot of kids unfortunately struggle. And that's something that I've tried to do more of is making sure that I am seeing people and identifying them and and hearing their voice and not just having my voice out there. Because <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think that's really important. And that's, that's, you know, that's part why I went into pediatrics is because I love kids and I love their enthusiasm. I love seeing them. And I've always kind of had a very soft spot for that kid that's over sitting in the corner that's by themselves and may not get that attention. So I think in the big picture of things, I think if we just do a little bit more of that as as a society, that probably would go a long way of just recognizing people and letting them have a little bit of a voice. That doesn't mean that we all have to get up and grandstand, but but I think in the big picture of things, it's just letting them letting them talk. That's I, I, I said this before on my podcast. I think one of the most frustrating experiences I have in an office visit with a parent and a child is the parent who dominates the discussion mm-hmm. when I'm sitting there talking to the kid and I want their experience. And the parent just basically snuffs them out. You can just see the life get sucked out of that kid. And it's it's so demoralizing when you see that. And again, I just turn right away from the parent and I start talking to the kid again. Because I really want their perspective. I want them to be an a, an active participant in their healthcare. So I think that's an important point. And I've got kind of grandstanding on there too now. Kind of no, no, but I do think because <laughs> I think what you're doing is you're giving like concrete examples of how folks, you know, listening to the, especially, you know, when you're more junior in your career, it's hard because you you don't always, you know, that's the type of, that's the art of medicine, right? Like you can memorize all the differential diagnosis of knee pain, but the art of medicine is then saying, you know, I really don't think your kid should participate in this tournament this weekend because I think you have a stress fracture and like, what are you talking about? I think it is, again, being that listener, the reason why there's such a large proportion of the homeless population who are also members of the transgender community is that unfortunately, the very people who you would hope, and I think many people take for granted that you get support from, from their families and loved ones don't. And so it does, it's like a double difficult level because again, the the people who you would expect to love and protect you don't and reject you. And so again, I think that's when I see these things, these policies being passed in these various states or, you know, legislation being proposed to restrict transgender youth from participating in sports. I'm just like, geez, you know, I mean, these kids have already overcome so many obstacles that just 
most of us take for granted. Like there, and many people might be familiar with this book. I actually just read it in the past year and it it was really good. It's called Becoming Nicole. It's by Amy Nutt, N-U-T-T. Basically it's one family story. There were twin boys born at birth and one of the boys, gender identity, really identified as female. And so the book kind of goes through this process and they live in a very rural area. The dad who is just the nicest guy, but is very open and he's just, I do not support this. I'm really having difficulty. I mean, it was just a very insightful book looking at it from a pediatrics perspective, from a family perspective. I have transgender friends. I mean, I I know people in the transgender community. I have patients who have transitioned. And so reading this book for me was still very eye-opening because it was really through the lens of the family and just what a parent has to go through in order to protect their kid. For me, it was a very helpful framing of the bathroom issue, which, you know, that refers to in many states that to either have a unisex bathroom or to have kind of an all-inclusive bathroom. Why is that necessary? And it was just, it was this for the safety of this young woman. It was really put it in a, in a true context. So I would recommend that book, Becoming Nicole. It's a great book written from a one family's perspective of watching the transition of throughout, you know, really a young age, you know, throughout adolescence and to watch them, you know, struggle, just like we were talking about making mistakes, not really sure if they understood their loved one and really the community and watching them learn and grow from that was really powerful. So I think that that's a great book. If you're like, I don't really, I still don't really understand the framing of this. That might be a good book to read. Well, we'll make sure to have a link to that in our show notes as we will the, the document about the care of the transgender athlete for sure. We mentioned this several times and we've alluded to this, but we haven't really kind of touched on this in detail. You know, the last few years, this year in particular, we've seen a surge in the number of anti-transgender athlete bills that have been introduced in state legislatures around the country. Can you talk about that a little bit? Certainly, it's been going on the past five, six years. But in the last year, I mean, it's just from five years ago, it's like increased by almost tenfold. It's and, and I'm sure part of that is a media bias, you know, that's kind of highlighting these things. So certainly it's some of it, I think, is probably either reactionary. You know, if there was a transgender athlete that was in the news or highlighted, I think a lot of states responded to that. I mean, certainly there's been instances where in Texas, for example, there was a transgender male who was made to participate by state law against biological females, cisgender females. And this transgender male who is on testosterone supplements, I mean, this is known, you know, did very well in these wrestling tournaments and ended up becoming the state champion. And so it highlighted that, I mean, this transgender male, uh, Max, wanted to participate in the male competitions and in the, in the, in compete against other men in, in the wrestling tournaments, but by state law was forced to compete as the biological sex that they were born as. So it highlighted to me that these these policies, not only don't they make sense, but it actually in, in some ways is then even still harmful to cisgender athletes. And so I think some of this is reactionary. Some of this, unfortunately, I think carries an undercurrent of other kind of cultural and societal expectations and norms. And it's not really based off of science or health, I guess is what I will say. 
Going on that, it does seem like the major concern stems primarily from transgender females having a competitive advantage over cisgender females. And there's also concern for transgender males supplementing with testosterone, as you mentioned, then eventually having a competitive advantage potentially over cisgender males. So what's the validity of those two scenarios? It makes sense from a theoretical level. So I'll start with transgender males. Transgender males are taking testosterone supplementation in order to maintain their medical transition and maintain those changes. In the end, there hasn't been that much research on either the transgender male or transgender female population, particularly in athletes. So I will say some of the studies that are out there cited aren't specific to athletes, or they may be specific to athletes, but more so adult athletes, and particularly those who have transgendered maybe later in life. So it's really interesting. We have a really paucity of data on transgender youth who are transitioning. Transgender males are taking supplemental um, testosterone. And what they have found is that the ranges of their testosterone is often even still lower than a cisgender male, even with supplementation. Or uh, in addition to that, even if the testosterone level is considered within that normal range of a cisgender male, especially depending upon when they transition in life, they still may not gain that same muscle mass increase and other benefits of testosterone because they haven't been getting that testosterone throughout their lives. So we know that testosterone for sure increases muscle mass, therefore increases strength and oftentimes increases speed. That said, we're not really exactly sure how it correlates exactly with performance. I also think theoretically it's a very valid concern that transgendered females may have a competitive advantage over cisgender females. Just a reminder, though, that transgender females, if they have medically transitioned, they are on testosterone blockers. Their testosterone levels are oftentimes less than some of the cisgendered females that they're competing in. So remember, all females have testosterone levels and they probably all vary. There's a number of female athletes, that cisgender female athletes, that probably have higher testosterone levels than their fellow competitors, but they are oftentimes not measured. The transgender females who are competing against the cisgender females oftentimes have lower testosterone levels than the cisgender females that they're competing against. What the research has shown is that especially if someone has transitioned later in life, transitioned male to female, there are still probably some muscle mass differences and strength differences. Even though they're on testosterone blockers, those changes may stay. I definitely think we need more research in this area. And I think specifically, we need to have more research in transgender youth who are active in sports because I think one of my questions that I have is, again, so much of the research that's published out there have really focused on athletes that transition later in life as adults. If you transition earlier in life as a teenager, your body's going to be either exposed or not exposed, depending upon which way you transition, to these hormones that are definitely going to affect your strength and potentially even your speed and therefore your performance. And so that we just don't really have that information. Right now, what I would say is, that we need to have a lot more data, particularly looking at performance. I still think that how the IOC and the NCAA have set up 
their criteria for people to participate is important. You know, looking at those testosterone levels, requiring some time in terms of when the transition started to allowing folks to compete as the gender identity that the gender that they identify as. So I think right now the organizations are doing as good of a job as they can. We need more information. And I think science is going to get better at helping us to create a more just and really level playing field that balances out cisgendered and transgender athletes which is important, I think, for both communities. You brought up the point that I think probably is the sticking point for most people is the concept of someone who is born male for sex and they're competing in a sport against females who are born female. And I think that's probably the biggest sticking point. I don't think many people would have the biggest concern about the opposite way for the most part. I mean, obviously that does happen, but, and, and again, we have to acknowledge that this, this is a topic that can be uncomfortable for many to discuss because when we get to the issues of sexuality, that's challenge for many people to have open discussions about this. And obviously there is the background of varying perceptions based heavily on religious traditions that gets into discussions as well here. And I don't think there is an easy answer to how to make things as equitable as possible for all athletes here, which again, I, that's why I take pause when we're so reactionary to have these bans. Hey, have we really kind of taken a look at this? You, you mentioned there's there's a paucity of data out there. So we don't really have the good evidence to show that there is such a huge competitive advantage here when we're talking about it. You know, And again, if this was an easy thing, we'd have it figured out by now. So how, mm-hmm. how do you approach a discussion with someone who does have reservations concerns about that specific topic, the transgender female issue. One thing I will highlight is probably one to 3% of the population. I mean, it's not that low, right? I mean, in medicine, anything over 1% is not rare. I think the point I would make with folks is that there are many transgender individuals who are participating in sports on a regular basis. There are many transgender females who are participating in competitive sports and they're not all crushing the competition. So if that was the case, certainly the Olympic team from the US and other countries would look very different and and it doesn't. Again, I do think that the policies that at the international level and at the national level, you know, at the really high echelons of competitive sports are making sure that we have the best knowledge available in order to, again, allow transgender individuals to participate, but also ensure that there isn't a competitive advantage. Right now, again, I would highlight that transgender females are not crushing all the sports categories because I think there's enough of the folks out there who are interested in sports and participating in sports. If that was, if there was a huge advantage they would be far ahead in front of cisgender females. I would say that right now the evidence doesn't point to an overwhelming advantage for most transgender females. I would also remind that transgender females who are medically transitioned are going to be taking testosterone blockers. So most of them have lower testosterone levels than a cisgender female does. In the end, though, that's my point, I guess, is that it's not all the testosterone. We're focusing on the testosterone. There's probably other factors that are in play as well. And I think as we get better in understanding those, this is going to be a much fuller dialogue and discussion. And I do think then that way, naysayers and folks who are concerned will be able to have good answers for those folks in terms of the rationale of these organizations making decisions and allowing folks to participate. What are the policies out there of any of the major sports organizations in addressing a transgender athlete? Are, do any organizations have anything out there? 
Another resource that I think would be a good resource because it's both at the national and then the state level, but it's also organized by the different types of sports. The trans athlete website, the transathlete.com that was started by Chris Mosier, who is a transgender male who was actually the first transgender athlete to compete at the U.S. Olympic trials. He runs that website and it's pretty darn updated. I think it's used to be able to search. Definitely you can search by sport. I'm pretty sure you can search by state even what the policies are. So if you're like, hey, you know, I'm listening to this podcast and this really, you know, I'm the head of a sports organization or I'm at, you know, I'm in charge of the policies and procedures at the college and the university that I work at. If you're like, geez, are there some good policies out there that I could look at? That's a great website for that. The IOC and the, and the NCAA policies are pretty similar overall. And I, and I have to say, I may not have like the, the specifics to them, but they are based off of monitoring testosterone. Both the IOC and the NCAA policy don't necessarily require surgical transition anymore, but medical transition is required Particularly to your point, it is focused on the transgender female athletes. So monitoring testosterone levels and ensuring that the testosterone range is in a suppressed level. We've touched upon this a little bit throughout the podcast today, but how can someone be an ally to transgender athletes? I think you've really given some great examples from your work and and your life and in your community itself, and that it's really... Whether you understand the transgender community or feel that you know someone who identifies as such, it's really, if it, if it sounds mean, it's probably wrong. So you might not have maybe the exact words or terms to utilize, but even as a bystander, you don't know who else is at that school board meeting. You don't know who else is on that sideline listening. You know, it, you can really make a huge difference by if someone says something derogatory against any community, obviously, but we're specifically talking about the, the trans community, you know, saying, now, what did you mean by that? Can you explain what you were trying to say by that? Because even again, if you don't have the terms, having someone kind of stop and try to explain, because sometimes they actually weren't trying to be derogatory, it just came out the wrong way. So I think that that is helpful as well. And to foster better dialogues. I think the other thing, as I mentioned before, it's that to really normalize using pronouns, I think as a cisgendered individual, I don't think of that, you know, when I introduce myself and when that is normalized and you as a cisgender individual are just like, yep, I'm, I'm she, her, or I'm they, them. I feel like people whose gender identity is either within transition or this is something that they're thinking about and there's something they're really agonizing about. If we normalize it, then it's comfortable for everyone because it's just everyone's doing that. And I think the other thing I identified is a good way to be an ally is that you are going to make a mistake. I make mistakes constantly and I feel like I'm being trying to be very careful about stuff. And I'm sure that there was a mistake I made in this podcast, you know, of a better way I could have said something. So it's realizing that and then acknowledging it, uh, apologizing in the moment, and then learning from that and continuing to try to learn more and uh, educate yourself, which is, it sounds like what you've been doing, you know, with this podcast and on many other issues, which is great. And, and learning from our kids too. I think the the next generation, this will be kind of second nature to them because I get corrected all the time with my kids. No, they're they're They go by he, they, or, or and so it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have with them because it's like I said, for them, it's like, it's there. 
But for those of us that are a little bit older, that's not what we usually do on a regular basis. So uh, it's, it's again, it's that learning process. We can always be learning and, and changing and, and adapting and, no, and, and I think you're right. And I, I, it is kind of funny, especially as a mom myself, like, you know, my kids are like, no, no, mom, th- this is this is what's happening. This is what's going on. I'm like, oh, OK. And again, I feel like I'm pretty savvy, like pretty like forward thinking. And I'm like, oh, OK. OK, thanks. Thanks for telling me that. That was really helpful. Yeah. So, um, Which yeah. is great because I do think it's one to go back to one of the things we were talking about initially with the epidemiology. I don't feel that we're going to make more people transgender by having, you know, characters on TV shows or bringing this up in popular culture, things like that. I just think more people are going to feel comfortable about coming out and being comfortable with their gender identity. Exactly. We like to end our discussions with something we call the Pearl of Podcast. It's kind of a take-home point, something you would like to close with as an important concept or statement. So what would be your Pearl of the Podcast today? Well, again, I just wanted to thank you for having me because this I do see how I think some folks are like, now, why is this a relevant topic to the sports medicine community? So I think the Pearl that I would take away, I'm probably going to cheat and do too. The Pearl I would take away is that... We never know who we're in the company of, whether it's someone who may identify as transgender and you just don't know, or again, whether they have a child or someone they love or care about, how you think about things, how you approach patients, how you talk about care and options. You don't know who else is in the room with you. So it's always to kind of have that approach. And I think the other pro I would come away with is just, again, I can't express how surprised I was by the research showing that just using the preferred pronouns of an individual, how much that decreased the suicide risk and suicide ideation for those individuals. So it's little things like that that we can do and be thoughtful about that can make huge differences. Fantastic. So I'd like to thank Dr. Rizzoni for her knowledge and advocacy for transgender athletes and for spending some time with us today. Hopefully this was valuable information for you and expand your knowledge base. I know it's always good for me to have these discussions because I always learn something new. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We appreciate you taking the time to leave us a five-star review and providing us feedback. Also follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod. That's sports plural in there, all one word. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.